Well, let's turn again this morning to the book of Hebrews. And we'll begin in chapter 2. Read three passages to begin this morning. Hebrews chapter 2, we'll read the first four verses. For this reason, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away from it. For if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable and every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? After it was at the first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard. God also testifying with them, both by signs and wonders and by various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to His own will. Chapter 3, verse 12. Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. But encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ, if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. While it is said, today if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked Me. And then the final one, chapter 10, verse 19. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which He inaugurated for us through the veil, that is, His flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for He who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins." but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Well, we come this morning to the final message in our four-part series on the subject of stopping spiritual drift. And we began once again with this exhortation from chapter 2 of Hebrews. For this reason, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away. For how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation. The believers here in Hebrews had heard the gospel from people who had been with Christ Himself. They had not only that, but the message of the gospel had been confirmed to them by signs and wonders, by various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit. So they had heard a pure and a powerful gospel and even witnessed signs and wonders and miracles. And yet they were still in danger of drifting away from that gospel. 
And so the point here is that if they could experience all of that and still need to hear these warnings and exhortations, how much more do we need to hear them this morning? How will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? It's possible for a person to neglect their salvation in the same way that a person can neglect their garden. You can neglect to water it, neglect to prune it, neglect to remove the weeds. And if that continues on unchecked, life is choked out. I mentioned last week that Christianity is not mechanical. It's not like a machine where you put in your money and pull a lever and out pops your eternal life. Repentance from sin and faith in the Lord Jesus is simply the beginning of a race to be run. It's the beginning of a voyage that you take. And Christ Himself said, Matthew 24, that it is those and only those who endure to the end who will be saved. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, you are saved if you hold fast the word I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. He says again in Colossians 1, He has now reconciled you in His fleshly body through death in order to present you before Him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. If, indeed, you continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast, not moved away, there's the language of drifting again, not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard. Beloved, the moment that you put yourself in Christ's hands, there are forces that are at work to destroy you. And because of that, it's possible for you to be moved away from the hope of the gospel. Or in the words of Hebrews 2, it's possible for you to drift away. And the thing that makes drifting so scary is how slowly and gradually it occurs. No believer goes to bed at night, a committed Christian, and then wakes up the next morning deciding they're going to deny the Lord. It doesn't work that way, you see. It's a gradual process. A gradual process, slow enticed by the world, the flesh, and the devil, a process of hardening your heart against the voice of the Lord and the voice of your own conscience, a process of drifting slowly and gradually. Just like I was saying here uh, in the first message, Jim and I were talking about how you can be out in a boat fishing, not paying attention to your surroundings, and all of a sudden you kind of wake up and realize you've drifted yards, possibly long ways away from where you started. You don't even know you're moving, you see, drifting. Slowly and gradually until you crash. Like Hymenaeus and Alexander, who Paul says in 1 Timothy 1, he said they did not keep faith and a good conscience and so suffered shipwreck in regard to the faith. So how then can a person stop spiritual drift? How can a person who is drifting put an end to the drifting that's occurring in their life? And how can a person who is not currently drifting prevent it from happening to begin with? And we've looked at two things so far in response to those questions. Two weeks ago, we considered a phrase from Hebrews 12, fixing our eyes on Jesus, or literally looking to Jesus. The author of Hebrews says there in chapter 12, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the author of and perfecter of faith. So stopping spiritual drift involves fixing our eyes on Jesus. Not the physical eyes of our head, but the spiritual eyes of our hearts. We look not at the things that are seen, Paul says, but at the things that are not seen. How can you look at things that are not seen? Well, it's as we hear or read the Word of God that the eyes of our hearts are enlightened by the Spirit, enabling us to see, to behold, 
the glory of Christ contained in the Scriptures. And beloved, this should be our desire every time that we listen to a sermon, every time that we read the Word. Our desire is not simply to take in information, but to have the eyes of our hearts enlightened that we would see the glory of God in the face of Christ. Because it's as you see that, it's as you behold that glory, that you're transformed into His image and powerfully kept from drifting away. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3, We all with unveiled face, beholding, there's that seeing, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed. It's that word metamorphosis. We're being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord the Spirit. And if you are catching regular glimpses of that glory, the danger of drifting will be defeated in your life. The things of the earth, including all enticements to drift, will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. So the first way that we stop spiritual drift is by looking to Jesus as He is revealed to us in the Scriptures. And then last week, we considered a second phrase from the book of Hebrews related to stopping spiritual drift, and that was the phrase, let us draw near. The author says, Hebrews 4, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And then again, right here in chapter 10, verse 19. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which He inaugurated for us through the veil, that is His flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Under the Old Covenant, the basic message was keep out. Stay away from God's presence. Under the Old Covenant, only one person, the high priest, was allowed to draw near to God through that veil. And that one person was only allowed to draw near to God for a few minutes out of one day the entire year. That was on the Day of Atonement. And then 2,000 years ago, the real Day of Atonement came. 2,000 years ago, the great high priest, not just the high priest, but the great high priest, Hebrews says, went through that veil and he sprinkled his blood on the mercy seat to pay for the sins of his people. Only it wasn't the blood of bulls and goats, but his own blood that was shed, his own blood that was sprinkled. And after he had put away sin by the sacrifice of himself, the gospel accounts tell us that that veil of the temple, the veil that shut out everyone from God's presence, that veil was torn in two from top to bottom. God was telling the world that access into his most holy presence was now open for everyone who would come through the Lord Jesus Christ not just for a few minutes during one day out of the entire year, but always for all time. I mean, has it ever struck you that you can be driving in your car and just lift up your eyes to heaven and you can enter into that holy place right as you're driving? Always for all time, not just priests, but every believer in Christ from the least to the greatest of them. Not with fear and trepidation, but drawing near with boldness and confidence in full assurance of faith. What are the requirements for coming, you ask? One requirement. Need. That's it. The only requirement is that you're needy. All the fitness he requires is to what? 
feel your need of Him. We draw near in order to receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And a time of spiritual drifting certainly qualifies as a time of need. So what do you do? You draw near. And beloved, no one goes to the throne of grace and comes away empty-handed. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. He who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. Do you want to stop spiritual drifting? Draw near. Draw near, the author of Hebrews exhorts us. Draw near and receive mercy and grace to help in each and every time of need. See, our problem is we don't go. That's the problem. We don't draw near in time of need. His faithfulness is great and His mercies are new every morning. Beloved, draw near in time of need, every time of need. What we want to do this morning then is consider a third and final phrase from the book of Hebrews related to stopping spiritual drift. And that's the phrase, encourage one another. Stopping spiritual drift by necessity involves encouraging one another. And as with everything that we've talked about so far in this series, this isn't some kind of optional thing that you tack on to the Christian life. Encouraging one another is a necessity if we are going to defeat drifting in this body of Christ. So this morning then we'll consider this subject of encouraging one another, and I want to do that under four headings with you this morning. First of all, the necessity of encouraging one another. Secondly, the responsibility of encouraging one another. Third, the ability to encourage one another. And then fourthly, the means necessary for encouraging one another. So first of all then, heading number one, the necessity of encouraging one another. And I had said a few weeks ago in the first message that one of the primary causes of spiritual drift is a lack of fellowship. And one of the first signs that a believer is in trouble spiritually is that he begins to withdraw from other believers. Now, why is that such a big deal? Well, it's a big deal because as a Christian, you simply cannot, and I stress the cannot, you cannot make it on your own. You cannot make it on your own. Perseverance in the Christian life is a community project, always. Now, why is that the case? Well, because God has designed the church in such a way that each member of the body is mutually dependent on other members of the body. You see, God has designed it that way. Each Christian here this morning is a living member of a living body, a living organism, a living unit. And as Paul says there in 1 Corinthians 12, no member of the body can say to another member, I don't need you. You can't say that. Every member is necessary in order for the body to function properly because God has supernaturally designed it that way. Paul says again in 1 Corinthians 12, he says, God has so composed, now listen to this, this is amazing. God has so composed the body so that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. So that every member would have the same care for one another. Again, he has supernaturally designed each body of believers so that each and every member of that body, each individual member, would have the same care for one another. 
That's what Paul says. And part of that care for one another is this necessity to encourage one another. Now let's flip again to Hebrews 3 here. We'll flip back to chapter 10 in a second. But Hebrews 3, again verse 12. Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God, but encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Notice the connection here. Verse 13, between encouraging one another and your heart not being hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. There's a connection there. And the implication is that unless you are regularly giving and receiving encouragement from other members of the body, your heart will become hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. It's that simple. And then flip back to chapter 10, verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another or incite one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now, again, notice the flow of thought here. Verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. In other words, stop drifting, hold fast, persevere, stay the course. All right, how do we do that? Verse 24, let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. We hold fast by stimulating or inciting one another to love and good deeds. I think the King James says provoking one another to love and good deeds. Okay, how and when is that done? How and when is it that we do this inciting or this provoking one another to love and good deeds? Verse 25, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. So here's the picture. You put all this together. Holding fast the confession of our hope, stopping spiritual drift, is done by assembling ourselves together in order to encourage one another and stimulate one another to love and good deeds. All right? Stopping spiritual drift means assembling ourselves together in order to encourage one another and stimulate one another to love and good deeds. So I say again, if spiritual drift is going to be stopped in the lives of individuals, in the lives of a church, there has to be this necessity of encouraging one another. And he says here, verse 25, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. All the more as that final day draws near. So the necessity of encouraging one another. Secondly, the responsibility of encouraging one another. I said a minute ago that God has supernaturally designed the church in such a way that each member of the body is mutually dependent on each, each other member of the body. Again, God has so composed the body. 1 Corinthians 12. God has so composed the body. It's like a symphony. Composed. So that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. 
So there is a responsibility that each member of the body has to care for other members of the body. And as we've already seen, part of that responsibility is the responsibility to encourage one another. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5, he says, I urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with everyone. But here's what I really want us to get at under this heading. In the body, the responsibility to encourage does not rest solely on the shoulders of the elders. But the responsibility to encourage rests on the shoulders of every single member of the body. If you have it in your mind that it's the pastor's job to encourage people and not my job, then you're wrong. As we've already heard this morning, the New Testament over and over again uses this phrase, one another, when it speaks of encouraging in the body. The responsibility to encourage in the body is a responsibility that is shared by each and every member of that body. All of the members are to have the same care for one another. In fact, ministry as a whole in the body is not the sole responsibility of the elders either. Turn to Ephesians 4, and we can see this clearly. And really, encouraging is a ministry. That's what it is. But ministry as a whole in the body is not the sole responsibility of the elders either. Ephesians 4, verse 11. Talking about the Lord Jesus Christ here giving spiritual gifts to His church. And verse 11 says... And He, that is Jesus, gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. Now notice what Paul says here. God has given pastors and teachers to the church. Why? Verse 12, for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. In other words, the job of the pastor is to equip the saints so that the saints can do the work of service, the ministry. You see the flow there? He gives the pastors to equip the saints, that's all of you, to do the ministry. That's the the job of a pastor, to equip you so that you can do the ministry, so that you can do the work of service. So the pastors equip the saints to do the ministry, and the result of that is given in verse 15 and 16. Verse 15, but speaking the truth in love, so here's the result now, we've been equipped, so what are we supposed to do? Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into Him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body, being fitted and held together, by what every joint supplies, not just a few supply, but by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part. You see this again? It's everywhere. Each individual part causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. So again, the emphasis here on the responsibility of each individual member of the body, what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part. So I repeat, in the body, the responsibility to encourage does not rest solely on the shoulders of the elders. The responsibility to encourage rests on the shoulders of every member of the body. 
Now, I just want to pause here. I mean, has it ever struck you? Have you ever been struck by the weight of that responsibility? Has it ever occurred to you as a member of this body, has it ever occurred to you that you are responsible to encourage other members of the body to keep them from being hardened by the deceitfulness of sin? That you are responsible to consider how to stimulate other members of the body to love and good deeds. Again, it's not just the pastor's job, it's your job. And it is a weighty responsibility that we have. But then that leads into the third thing, the ability to encourage one another. We've talked about the responsibility, now let's talk about the ability to do it. Simply hearing about your responsibility can leave you pretty discouraged until you realize that God hasn't just given you the responsibility to encourage other people, but he's also given you the ability to do it. Now, in some ways, this is obvious because the writers of the New Testament wouldn't exhort believers over and over again to do something, encourage one another, if they weren't able to do it. But on the other hand, many believers do feel like they are incapable or at least inadequate, which simply isn't true. And I want us to look at a few verses here. Turn to Romans 15. talking about the ability that each member of the body has to encourage. Romans 15. Now, remember here that Romans was a letter that was written to a body of believers. It wasn't written to the elders at Rome. It was written to the entire body of believers at Rome. Also, remember that Paul had never actually met these Roman believers in person. He had wanted to meet them several times and has never been able to. So he's never even met these people in person. He's never seen them face to face. And yet, look what he says about them in verse 14. Concerning you, my brethren, I myself also am convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness filled with all knowledge, and able also to admonish one another. There's that thing of encouraging one another. Now, how could Paul have so much confidence about a bunch of believers that he himself had never even met? How could he be convinced that they were all full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able also to admonish one another? The reason Paul could have such confidence about these Roman Christians is because the qualities that he describes here are things that are true of every single believer. Let's look at it. Every Christian is full of goodness. Let me read it for you. Matthew 12. Jesus is teaching here, Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, the Pharisees, how can you, being evil, speak what is good? For the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. All right, now here's the description of the believer. The good man brings out of his good treasure what is good. Contrast the unbeliever. And the evil man brings out of his evil treasure what is evil. You see, every Christian is full of goodness. Every Christian has a new heart that's full of goodness. It's what Jesus said. 
Every Christian is filled with all knowledge. Now, this obviously doesn't mean that every Christian knows everything there is to know because in the very next verse in Romans, Paul talks about how he wrote to them to instruct them. But it does mean that every Christian has been taught by God himself. John 6, you shall all be taught of God. Every Christian has been taught by God himself regarding the foundational truths of the gospel message. 1 John 2, I have not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Again in 1 John 2, 27, As for you, the anointing which you received from Him abides in you, and you have no need for anyone to teach you. But as His anointing teaches you about all things, and is true and is not a lie, and just as it has taught you, you abide in Him. Filled with all knowledge. Every Christian here this morning, and this is incredible, we don't think like this, every Christian here this morning can open his or her mouth and say things that many prophets and righteous men longed to hear. Every Christian here this morning can do that. You can say things that many prophets and righteous men longed to hear. That's a fact. Every Christian is filled with all knowledge. And because every Christian is full of goodness and filled with all knowledge, every Christian is able, Paul says, to admonish one another. I'm convinced of this. You're able to do this. You're able to open your mouth and speak truth to a fellow believer, to encourage, to admonish, to exhort, to rebuke. So not only does every believer have a responsibility to encourage and care for other members of the body, but every believer has been given the ability to do it, you see. Through the power of God and regeneration, through the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit in the heart, every believer has the mind of Christ, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2. Every believer is a good man who is able to bring forth good things out of his good treasure. If that's not true of you, then you're not a Christian, you see. Every Christian is a good man, able to bring forth good things out of his good treasure, and then give those good things to fellow believers. So there's a necessity of encouraging one another, and that every believer has been given this responsibility to do so. But every believer has been made able to do so, given the ability through the power of God and regeneration, the work of the Spirit in a person's life. Then finally, number four, let's consider the means used to encourage one another. The means necessary for encouraging one another. What are the means used to encourage one another? Or to say it another way, what are we supposed to be encouraging one another with? What are we supposed to be encouraging one another with? And the answer is Scripture, or the truths of Scripture. And just as we did in the message on looking to Jesus, we find ourselves again going back to the Scriptures here to meet our needs in this area. If you're, you're still in Romans 15, look at Romans 15, verse 1. Now we who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength and not just please ourselves. Each of us is to please his neighbor for his good to his edification. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written, Scripture, 
whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. Now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus. Now notice here in verse 5 that it is ultimately God who gives perseverance and it's ultimately God God who gives encouragement. He's the God who gives encouragement. But notice also that He does it through the encouragement of the Scriptures. Verse 4. Through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. Now may the God who gives encouragement. Verse 5. You see, it's through the Scriptures that the encouragement comes. Do you want God to encourage someone? Then give that person some Scriptures to hold on to because it's through the Scriptures that God gives encouragement. We see a similar thing in Colossians 3.16. I'll just read this to you. Let the Word of Christ... There again, Scripture, truth. Let the Word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another. Now notice here again that teaching and admonishing one another is preceded by letting the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. Why? Because it's when the Word of Christ is dwelling within you, when truth, scriptural truth is dwelling within you, that you're able to open your mouth and speak truth to someone else. It's when the Word of Christ is dwelling within you that you're able to encourage someone with the Word of Christ. Encouragement through the Scriptures. As I said a couple of weeks ago, don't just tell someone to look at Jesus. Open your Bible and give them something to look at. Talk to them about Christ so they have something to see. And in the same way, don't just tell someone to cheer up or... You know, be encouraged, or even I'll pray for you. That's that's fine. That's good. But give them truth. You see, give them scripture. Give them the word to encourage and comfort them. Give the Holy Spirit some kindling that the Spirit can use to start a fire in their hearts. Give them scripture. Now, I want to get practical here. At least I think it's practical. In 2 Timothy 3, Paul says that all Scripture is God-breathed and is profitable. All Scripture is profitable and useful for encouraging believers. And it is amazing how the Holy Spirit is able to use just about anything in the Bible to give encouragement to someone. And it's always better to give a person something from Scripture rather than nothing at all. But at the same time, there is a specific category of Scripture that I think we should give special attention to when it comes to encouraging believers. And I'm thinking here of the promises of Scripture. And I'll say to you this morning, do you want to be a real Barnabas type of person? Do you want to be a real son of encouragement? Then learn to wield the promises of Scripture. Do you want to be able to give hope and comfort to struggling believers or exhort those who are drifting from the gospel? Again, learn to wield the promises of Scripture. Now, the wonderful thing about this is that others have already done the hard part for you. Others have already labored to compile many of the promises of Scripture, and you can enter into their labors by picking up a simple Bible promise book. I have one here that I use. Um, the thing that's frustrating is there's no Bible promise books in the NASB. 
Um, you just have to deal with it. It's frustrating, but we just have to deal with it. But I don't hesitate to say at all that every Christian here should own a Bible promise book. And I won't say that about many books, but every Christian should own a Bible promise book. Spurgeon told a group of ministry students that they should sell their coats if they had to to buy Matthew Henry's commentary. Well, I don't know if I'd go that far, but I would say that you should do everything you can to get a hold of a Bible promise book if you don't have one already. You can get one for just a few dollars, and it will you'll be repaid a thousand times over for that investment. Let me show you how wonderful this is. Let's say you know someone who's struggling, uh, and I'll just, I mean, everything is categorized. I'll just pick a category. Say you know somebody who's struggling with frustration in their life for whatever reason. So you look up, look up in the table of contents, promises for times of frustration. There it is. All right? See, I'm walking you through this. <laughs> you open it up. Cast your burden on the Lord, and He shall sustain you. He shall never permit the righteous to be moved. Great peace have those who love your law, and nothing causes them to stumble. The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord, and He delights in His way. On and on, promise after promise, just for times of frustration. Say you have someone who's depressed, struggling with depression. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that He may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon Him, for He cares for you. For His anger is but for a moment, His favor is for life. Weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. I mean, do you see how wonderful this is? This book is your ticket to becoming a Barnabas. It's your ticket to becoming a son of encouragement. So what are the means that we are to use to encourage one another? The truths of Scripture and especially the promises of Scripture. Peter calls them in 2 Peter 1 the precious and magnificent promises that God Himself has granted to every believer in order that we may become partakers of the divine nature. You want to help somebody? Give them promises. Give them the promises of Scripture. There's a scene in Pilgrim's Progress when Christian is locked in the dungeon of Doubting Castle until it dawns on him that he has the key already in his pocket to get out of the dungeon. And what's the name of that key? Anybody remember? It's Promise. You see what Bunyan's saying there? You want to get out of Doubting Castle? You want to help somebody else get out of that dungeon of Doubting Castle? Give them promises. Feed them the key of promise, the promises of Scripture. And the more that we use the promises, the more familiar we become with them, the more equipped we will be to encourage one another in the body at all times and in all circumstances. The more that you use them, the more you'll remember them. And you'll start applying them in different situations. The more prepared we will be then to encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of us will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin.